Well, hello and welcome again to Sport Business Finance Weekly, the podcast where we look at the biggest stories happening across the global sports industry, particularly through the lens of deal making and finance. I'm your co-host, Eric Fisher, Sport Business U.S. Editor. And as always, I am joined by Chris Russo from Fifth Generation Sports. Chris, how are we doing this week? I'm doing fine, Eric. How are you? Good, good. Once again, a busy week. Uh, a lot is happening. Things are changing very quickly across the uh, landscape, particularly as uh, more and more teams and more and more venues bring uh, a bring fans back. And uh, it seems like another uh, attendance uh, announcement of some sort uh, almost every few hours here. But uh, we've got a lot of interesting stuff here in the uh, episode coming up uh, this week. We're going to start off uh, with an interview with Chris Bevilacqua. He's one of the true accomplished veterans of the sports industry, and he's now involved with a real up-and-coming uh, betting company, Simple Bet. So we're going to spend some time with him. And then on the other side of that, we're going to take a look at some real interesting comments on the uh, media rights landscape from Comcast Brian Roberts and a couple of interesting deals from the venue and media space. So uh, stick around. We've got a lot to go through. Very pleased to have on Sport Business Finance Weekly is our guest this week, Chris Bevilacqua, co-founder and chief executive of sports betting startup SimpleBet. Bevilacqua is a highly accomplished veteran of the U.S. sports industry, having started more than two decades ago by founding the network that ultimately became the Viacom CBS-owned CBS Sports Network. From there, he successfully transitioned to successful media advisory career, helping numerous large-scale rights deals. He's also been an active investor and advisor in the sports, media, and technology sectors with companies such as StubHub, Lyft, and Airbnb, among others. More recently, Simple Bet, which has staked a place for itself in micro-betting, has gained sizable notice in the sports and gaming industries with a series of partnerships that includes alignments with top-tier entities such as Major League Baseball, National Basketball Association, FanDuel, and the Marquee Sports Network, among many others. The company earlier this month announced a $15 million funding round, bringing its total funding round, total funding to date to $50 million. And Chris, welcome to the program. All right. Thanks for having me, guys. Good to be with you. So I guess the first, you know, we've given your sort of whole bio here. The, the first obvious question is you've had this long run in the traditional media space. What got you excited about not only betting, but this particular flavor of betting? Well, that's a great question. I mean, like you said, I've been in the sports and media business for the better part of 35 years. So I'm an old guy and I have, you know, a a separate sports media advisory investing firm in BHV. And, you know, over the last number of years, probably the last four or five years, you know, as a part of all that work in negotiating, always on the sell side, so always sitting opposite of all the buyers like, you know, Fox and ESPN and CBS and DirecTV and Comcast and others, you know, a lot of what was starting to surface were data rights and interactivity rights and the value of those things, those kinds of rights in commercial deals. And so, you know, I saw, you know, going back four or five years ago, you know, the value of having, you know, a much more engaged fan and the importance of that for a rights holder. And so when my two current partners, Scott Marshall and Joey Levy, came with this idea about, you know, we want to start this sports betting company. I'm not a I'm not a sports better, but I knew enough to know that, you know, that an engaged fan, a, a fan that has money on a contest is more likely to watch longer. And at the end of the day, that's what media companies and rights holders want. So 
I came at it from that angle and I saw a huge opportunity and this was all pre-PASPA, but it was clear that PASPA, you know, at least I thought it was going to get repealed at some point. So we founded the company three years ago, literally one month before PASPA was repealed. And we've, as you said, raised $50 million. We've built out, you know, a really uh, robust, you know, enterprise software all around machine learning and automation that all enable what we call micro betting. And that is really highly engaging behavior for sports fans that want to be entertained while they're, you know, watching their favorite sports team or league. Chris, Chris Russo here. I know you have done some work with FanDuel, I believe on a free-to-play game, working with Intralot. What has worked so far? What, as you've deployed this product, whether it's in pilots or in full-scale deployment, what, what's working so far with fans? Well, the, the interesting thing about it, you know, and this is all so new, because, you know, remember, Passport was only not even three years where, you know, it's been legal here in the U.S. and it's rolling out state by state. And so, you know, we just had a thesis that, sports betting and the predominant way that people are going to interact with live sports was going to be through, you know, what's happening in play or in game. In other words, what's happening during the course of the two or three or four hour live sporting event. And there were no products that enabled or offered, you know, the ability to bet on every pitch or every at bat in a baseball game, or every play or every drive or every shot or every possession in a basketball game. So, we went into this thinking that that's going to be the predominant way that people bet on sports in the United States, especially around U.S.-based sports like football, baseball, and basketball. And so what we've seen in the early going is exactly that. Like even in our, in our FanDuel product, which is just a free-to-play game where you can bet on every drive and every play of an NFL game, we had it up all year long. And we saw off the charts engagement, we saw, you know, by the 17th week of the season, the average user was betting 80.1 times on Sunday. And 63% of them were betting on multiple games. And they were on the, the, the FanDuel app for an average of 26 minutes. And 28% of all the users were there for an hour or more. And so it was really super sticky, fun, engaging behavior that, you know, if you're a property rights holder or you're a media company, you know, that's what it's all about, right? So we saw that you know behavior, and now we're seeing it with a similar product on NBA, and we're about to roll out our baseball product to start of the end of the MLB season. So there just is a a very natural, entertaining fan engagement aspect to it, you know, and and we think that same behavior is going to translate over into real money betting behavior. So I want to get into a little of this latest fundraise that you've done, another fifteen million dollars. The nature of your investor base, it seems like you've got a really interesting mix of some other accomplished industry veterans, some institutional, some strategic. What's been the strategy behind getting this mix of investors and what's the intent for this latest round of money? Yeah, I mean, great question. I mean, we got through the, the tough times of the pandemic. We, we developed all of our products, which I said earlier, football, baseball, and basketball. And this, this round of capital was really you know, intended to take us, give us runway all the way, you know, well into 2022. And now as we're rolling out our first set of real money betting products, uh, which we did on Intralot uh, earlier this year around the NFL playoffs, we've signed a couple of more commercial deals, which will be live and integrated with other sports book over the next, you know, two or three months. You know, so you're going to see more and more of that product. And, and the capital that we've just raised is really designed to help us invest more into engineering and product resources so that we can get our products integrated faster for our customers, but it's, it's really just designed to accelerate the, the rollout of the products. 
Chris, in terms of your business model, do you license the software to the operators or do you also participate in the betting revenue streams or is it a combination? Yeah, no, it's, we're enterprise software. So yes, we license it to the operators and our business, our model on Real Money Gaming is a percentage of the NGR, the net gaming revenue. So the more people that bet more times and the more revenue that comes through the, our products, we get a piece of the NGR, the, you know, the net gaming revenue on the, on the free to play and the fan engagement side, like our FanDuel deal, that that's more of like a, a licensing model where it's more of a upfront fee or a share, a fee and a share of revenue on ad sales or CPAs, you know, on revenue that's generated out of the product. But so two different channels, sales channels there, but the, the one that we're most focused on is the real money betting channel. So we really can't have a guest on the podcast these days without asking about Spackapalooza and what's happening with the special purpose acquisition companies. Is there a place for simple bet in that whole situation or how, do, how are you viewing that whole frenzy that's going on? Yeah, I mean, because we just went through a fundraising and especially after we got live with Real Money Betting and, you know, just to give you one, you know, real solid data point was on Intralot, our very first live in-play uh, micro-market betting around NFL and the playoffs, our little micro-markets with no marketing in Washington, D.C., were 25% of all of Intralot's in-play handle on NFL. So no marketing, four weeks of rollout. So if there really is that type of volume and velocity around our micro-markets and it becomes the predominant way you know, we start, the investment community took notice of that. And, you know, that's how we're able to bring in aristocrat, you know, $16 billion market cap global casino and gaming company. We got, you know, the Florida funders guys in, we already had the San Francisco giants in. So, you know, we have some strategic capital around the table, but most, you know, interestingly towards the tail end, we started to hear from all the SPACs and the SPAC of Paloozas that's going on right now. You know, there's, there's what, 385, 390 SPACs, many of them, you know, that are looking at enterprise software, technology companies, sports and media and tech, and in particular sports betting. And we check all those boxes. And so, you know, I think, you know, there's about $100, $110 billion of capital that's sitting out there on the clock right now, because these things all are on two-year yep. clocks. And, you know, there's a lot of interest in this category. So, I mean, anything's possible. We'll see what happens. Chris, what do you think about, or when do you think that the media companies may start promoting these micro bets in game, in broadcasts, in streams? And how important is that to drive even more volume? Well, you know, if you look at what's going on across media, I mean, all the media companies now, the big ones are, are teaming up with sportsbook partners, right? You go down the list, PointsBet and NBC and you had William, William Hill and, and CBS. You had, you know, Fox and, and Flutter and you've got Caesars and, and DraftKings and ESPN. I mean, they're all... You know, what it says to me is that a lot of the media companies and all their reach platforms, right, are going to bring the, the sports betting opportunities and product innovation and products like our products out to the mass market much faster, not to mention COVID has accelerated all the regulatory uh, momentum here. And so I think you're just going to see a lot of product innovation, media companies now getting in the game, not only, you know, on the promotion and the marketing side, but also now getting in the, the flow of the revenue. And so I think we're top of the first inning of this stuff. 
So final question here for you. We're obviously getting to this tipping point in the American legalization of betting where some of the big population states are going to be coming online uh, with online betting. How do you sort of see that playing out? And, and more broadly, we get to the end of 2021. Where do you want simple bet to be? Well, I do think in terms of you know the bigger states, you know, the big ones like New York is, you know, on the precipice of, of trying to do something with mobile. Then you got Florida and Texas that are now starting to gin up. California is probably the, you know, the furthest away, but it's all happening a lot faster than, than anybody thought 12, 24 months ago. And so there's going to be, you know, real ubiquity across the, you know, the U.S. footprint. Now you got Canada right up north coming on. So, you know, the North American market is still very early. There are going to be a lot of, uh, of product innovation. We do think that the, the future is all about in-play and in particular about our, our products like Micros. So I, you know, I see a couple of years down the line, our products are going to be more broadly distributed. I think they're going to be in front of more of the casual fan audience who typically isn't in the sports betting audience. I think the whole ecosystem is going to grow you know, by leaps and bounds. And I think we're going to be a big part of that. Well, Chris Bevelacqua, co-founder uh, with Simple Bet, I really want to appreciate, uh, thank you for being part of this, appreciate your time, and obviously uh, yours the company we're going to be continuing to watch. All right. Thanks for having me on, Eric and Chris. Appreciate it. Thanks. We are back with the Sport Business Finance Weekly podcast, and we uh, really want to thank uh, Chris Bevilacqua again for spending some time with us here. And um, his prior background in the media space, it's an interesting segue here to what I first want to get into. Uh, Had some really interesting comments from uh, Comcast Chairman and Chief Executive Brian Roberts this week. Uh, He's speaking at a Morgan Stanley conference and obviously talking about a whole bunch of different things relative to Comcast business and the Olympics and Peacock and so forth. But uh, one of the interesting things that jumped out is asked about the um, NFL media rights negotiation, and that is appearing to come nearing to its conclusion with the uh, incumbents largely staying in place and maybe some changes with a Thursday night package, which we will probably get into in further detail once that gets uh, done here in the ensuing days and weeks. But the interesting thing relative to Brian Roberts is that there is some finite suggesting that there's some finite endpoint here to the media rights landscape and what they can literally afford that yes there's going to be big increases in the NFL media rights and yes the NFL has been and will for the foreseeable future continue as the top rated programming in all of American television but he said there was going to be some tough decisions to make and that was literally the quote tough decisions uh, and some consequences coming out of that NFL rights renewal that the money that they spent on that that they are poised to spend on that program programming means that there will be some decisions to make elsewhere, that there will be some relationships that won't continue and some other rights that they may just have to give up and or not participate in, that there there is some finite endpoint to this. And after years and years and years of people predicting doomsday for sports media rights and that never coming to pass here, it does seem you listen to what Brian Roberts has to say and what we've heard from Bob Chapek at Disney and others at their level across the media landscape, it does appear that there is seemingly some finite endpoint to this. It's possible, Eric. Uh, but then again, all of these major media companies have their streaming services, whether it be Peacock, whether it be the Paramount service we talked about last week, Disney yep. Plus, ESPN Plus. 
And so on the one hand, I know it gets difficult to pay huge rights fees when you see cable subscribers dwindling. On the other hand, all of these companies are in the beginning stages of trying to launch big streaming businesses. So sports can still be an important part of those streaming businesses and still generate some meaningful rights fees. So I think the you know, the jury's still out on, on how this is all going to affect the value of media rights going forward. Well, and that's a really interesting point, because not too much longer after Robert said what he said about having to make these tough decisions, he also waxed Repsotic about Peacock. And there, you know, we're at 33 million signups as of the end of January, certainly higher now, and made a fundamental point this week in the Morgan Stanley event, just as he has at every earnings report, that Peacock is a fundamental piece of all of Comcast going forward, and certainly in terms of the sports strategy for NBC Universal, and made very specific point that every single future sports rights deal will have Peacock as a primary component. And you have a situation like the WWE deal recently where that's essentially the holy component of what's happening on Peacock there, that that is strictly essentially a digital deal and the linear stuff almost sort of exists as a parallel to that. But point being, Peacock is very central to what Comcast is going to be doing going forward. It certainly appears that way. And it again appears that way for all of the major media companies. Their streaming services are becoming more and more important. And while the NFL is critically the, the centerpiece of, of the sports landscape in the U.S. from a media rights standpoint, there are many other sports. Maybe they're smaller, maybe they're not generating the same level of audience, but are still, you know, driving passionate fans to subscribe to these subscription services. So I think you may even see middle tier and sort of longer tail sports properties do well in a world where all of these streaming companies are competing to sign up new, you know, new, new customers. I think what the interesting bellwether coming out of the NFL, once that finally gets done at some point here this spring is what's going to happen with the national hockey league. Their dom- domestic rights are up with the, at the end of the uh, current season. And that's a, that's a big NBC property that's been very important. Obviously it doesn't get the ratings that the NFL does, but it's a real important top tier property for them. But ESPN would love to be back in a meaningful way. They've already got some on ESPN plus they'd love to have a lot more and kind of relationship. They, they had a cycle or two ago and uh, there are others out there. The NHL is, had a bit of a moment and uh, even with some of the delays, the Tahoe event, um, you know, the visuals obviously were fantastic and there's going to be a lot of interest out there. It's going to be an interesting uh, bellwether that to see how that shakes out because yes, there will be interest, but it's obviously not at the level that the NFL major league baseball or the NBA are. So it's going to tell us a lot as to what the real appetite is and what the, how tight those purse strings really are. I think it'll, it, it certainly will relate to the purse strings, Eric, but I think also it will be interesting to see the kind of creative deals that may or may not be done, whether we see more multicasting, whether we see more of the tech giants getting involved. Again, it, it appears, at least from some of the reports out there, that for the most part, the NFL is going to go back to their traditional broadcast partners with maybe an exception on Thursday night. Again, we don't know that for sure. But I think that that leaves many, many other players in the media landscape who could really make a, a strong play for sports, whether that's the NHL or, or any of the other properties that are coming up over the coming years. So I, I do believe it's a nice time to be having a property and be going out to the rights marketplace, even though, again, there are some 
some headwinds in the traditional TV market. I, I think overall, it's a good time to be in sports. No doubt. And obviously something we're going to be continuing to discuss here as these uh, deals come into focus. Shifting gears, a couple of other interesting deals here that I, I want to drill into. First, I want to start with um, a company called Playfly that a lot of our listeners may not be uh, fully familiar with. This is a, a rather new entity that just formed last year, backed by Sinclair Broadcast Group and, and, and some other venture capital and some other investors. They've started out sort of in a similar space as a as a Learfield, uh, the IMG unit representing college, some colleges and their multimedia rights. But they bought a trio of businesses that were previously owned by Fox Sports, uh, notably Home Team Sports, which uh, represents a lot of RSNs and, and uh, with large chunks of their ad sales. And so with uh, this package of uh, assets that uh, they picked up from Fox Sports, Playfly really is uh, got a they're going to be an interesting player to watch here that they've got a full breadth of media rights and sponsorship rights across essentially every level of competition in the American sports industry. And again, a company that a lot of uh, folks may not have heard of. Uh, they're going to be a real force to be reckoned with here in the coming months. They've made uh, quite a few acquisitions in a very short short period of time with the three you mentioned. They made one last year. Uh, and again, as you say, across ad sales, sponsorship, college rights, they bring the whole bundle to the table, which I think will give them some some clout in the marketplace. And I think over time, their brand will become uh, more familiar to the sports industry. Uh, again, as you say, they really are looking to build uh, build something that I think is going to be very competitive with some of the other major sports marketing companies. Yeah, and that that college space has not been probably as competitive as maybe even some of the schools would like. That you know, it's either been kind of an internal solution, or you know, the Learfield property has a lot of that. So to, even just in that college space, and particularly now as we move towards greater player rights in the name, image, and likeness space, having a sort of more competitive and dynamic landscape across all of the assets that are and will be for sale in the college landscape. It's going to be a real interesting space to watch. It is good news for uh, kind of similar to the media rights situation. It's good news for people that uh, control uh, college sports rights or, or for the colleges themselves, because now there are more options and more alternatives. And I think with that comes creativity and competition, uh, which I think will be helpful. So I think that this is a, a welcome move uh, for many in the industry. The other interesting deal that we've had come down the pike this week was in the venue space, particularly as it relates to uh, mobile payments and, and e-commerce and a Pennsylvania-based company called Shift for Payments, which really has not been in sports very much heretofore. They bought a company called Venue Next, which a lot of our listeners probably are familiar with, and they very much have been of and part of the sports and entertainment industry. This was a company formed back in 20. 2014 by uh, folks involved with the San Francisco 49ers. Um, and that sort of all came together as Levi Stadium uh, out in California was coming together. And they've since gone on to service a lot of folks across the sports and entertainment landscape with their digital and uh, mobile commerce solutions. And so Shift4 Payments, they paid $72 million in cash and stock for Venue Next. And, and really what they've kind of done now is create a, a fully kind of end-to-end digital payment solution and, and really sort of 
buttressed uh, their existing fi- uh, financial technology capabilities. And again, it's sort of a new name to to watch here because uh, now with this uh, venue next uh, assets in the fold here, they're out looking for more accounts and they're and they're really uh, eyeing sports as a as a growth vehicle. Yeah, Eric, I think that was one of the key rationales for the deal was that Venue Next had over that six or seven year period established a lot of relationships in the sports space, had done a lot of work with arenas, had done work in amusement parks and other venues kind of related to entertainment. And so now that vertical can be plugged into the shift for payments uh, ecosystem and, and allow for additional growth and excitement. I think also we've seen over the last you know six to, to nine months as the pandemic has endured uh, teams and venues needing to think about uh, new ways of serving fans, whether it's uh, contactless or virtual tickets or, or other ways of enhancing that fan experience. Now may be a very good time to be having those conversations of what's the next phase of the fan experience in the stadium. Yeah, and, and so this is a company, they did a uh, sponsorship deal with the Raiders, uh, Las Vegas Raiders, the NFL, last summer as uh, that team was getting ready to open uh, the new Allegiant Stadium. And so they were beginning to dip a toe in the water in sports. And again, they they had done um, a, a few things here and there. Uh, Staples Center was a, was a big account in sports. And this this really kind of hypercharges that. And it's going to bear watching. And, and this is another publicly traded company as well. So you know, having visibility into that venue operation space, you know, that's, you know, a lot of this stuff has been opaque. And so that's going to be interesting just from a visibility and disclosure standpoint, because Venue Next was privately held. They're now part of a publicly held company. So this is perhaps going to give us a window into sort of getting into the innards of how buildings operate, particularly in a post-COVID landscape. Absolutely. And and Eric, I think there are a number of different pieces of that stadium technology ecosystem. There's the the ticketing, there's the content, there's the food ordering, there's the merchandise. There's there's other companies that are out there servicing those needs in some way, shape, or form. There, you know, venue ties is out there. There's a company called Appetize. Uh, Yin's Cam is out there with strong programming and content. The so content there are line, a yep. number number of companies that are serving one piece or another piece of that stadium solution. But I do think we are looking at what could be a a revolutionary time as we head into next year, where if if people are going to make investments in upgrading that kind of experience, COVID is is a good prompt to do that. And I, I think we may see some real innovation over the next 12 to 24 months. Yeah, and, and it's a real recognition that their phone is the gateway to everything. It's it's the gateway to fandom at home, and it's increasingly, to your point, going to be the gateway to having a full fan experience in venue. And again, across this entire bucket of things, whether it be commerce, whether it be venue services, whether it be content, what have you, the phone and the fan's own device, that, that's the gateway to everything now. Yeah, yeah, and the teams are starting to get much more sophisticated about understanding they want to have that 360 relationship with the fan. They want to understand what fans are going to the games, what fans are buying merchandise, how to cross-sell. The sort of CRM aspects of this are also really important, leveraging social, leveraging technology. And so, again, teams are becoming sort of B2C or direct-to-consumer companies in a different way than they have in the past. And this technology is part of that, uh, that solution. 
So as we look ahead, this will this podcast will be dropping on March the eighth here. As we get deeper into March here, and, and spring's right around the corner, what are you sort of looking forward to? What's sort of coming around the horizon for you? Yeah, the uh, the announcement that struck me last week uh, as interesting was DAZN uh, bringing in Kevin Mayer to be chairman of that company, the the streaming service. Uh, John Skipper is leaving, as I understand, to uh, to work on a content initiative. Uh, but but Kevin had been head of uh, Disney Plus, had been uh, CEO of TikTok, uh, talented executive. I actually did work with him when he. He did some consulting work at the NFL several years ago when I was there. And so I I like Kevin a lot, but sort of to our point earlier, a lot of the other competitors in the space, the ESPN Pluses, the the Paramount with CBS, the Peacock, they are leveraging these broader rights deals with the leagues to gain content for their streaming services, whereas DAZN needs to to do that without necessarily the benefit of those traditional networks. So it'll be very interesting to see how that competitive dynamic plays out. Yeah, that's going to be really interesting because what appears to have been sort of becoming more clear for DAZN is that being not only just a pure play sports streamer, but a pure play sports streamer with a pretty heavy focus on just combat sports, that was pretty limiting because all of the other players that you mentioned, they've got not only broader sports rights, but all this other entertainment content to bolt onto as well. And even a situation like ESPN Plus, Many of us, myself included, buy that in the bundle with Disney Plus and Hulu and Peacock, Paramount Plus, a lot of these others in some way or or fashion are tying into all this other entertainment content as well and having a much broader service and having such a narrow focus for DAZN. It's going to be interesting to see how they redefine themselves if they do redefine themselves. Yeah, I, I, I assume Kevin is going to have some interesting ideas there. And in the in the wild card and in, in this whole discussion is the NFL Sunday ticket package and what happens with that. So I think there's still some plays ahead and uh, in the landscape could still shake a, a couple of different ways. Yeah, in the shifting gears here, the thing I'm really looking at, and I mentioned this at the at the top of the podcast here, we're, we're really sort of having a big time acceleration in the uh, attendance uh, allowances and what local and state health officials are allowing, particularly in baseball as we get closer to the April 1st opening day of the season. Um, it's already happening in spring training. All the camps in Florida and Arizona are allowing limited attendance. Demand has been very high, and we're seeing this play out. In for the regular season tickets as teams are now starting to finalize their manifests and put uh, at least initial games are on sale. And it's kind of completely flipped the demand equation where uh, traditionally outside of opening day, most Major League Baseball teams were not selling out any of their regular season games. You know, there are a few highly successful ones here and there, but by and large, outside of opening day, if you really wanted to go to a regular season game, any regular season game, you could. And now that's going to be very difficult because with these teams at 10, 20, 30 percent, Texas may be a little bit different. We'll see how that plays out. But a lot of them are in that sort of fifth to a quarter to a third of their venue capacity. And it's completely inverted the supply demand equation. And it's going to be very interesting watching and, uh, you know, I've been talking in recent days to a lot of the clubs and their ticketing execs and senior execs, and it's a brave new world for them because they they obviously were hoping to bring fans back in, but managing this very different demand dynamic, it's something that they've never faced in their careers. 
It, it is an unusual time, but I think everybody's happy that we're starting to move in the right direction on that. I was talking to a, a team executive yesterday, and he was saying that, you know, he, he's happy to get the fans back at some level. He doesn't think he's going to be walking around the suites with sponsors necessarily anytime soon. But just the feeling of getting the fans back and having that interaction is, I think, going to be a big morale booster, particularly at the team level where where they have taken a, a hit in terms of, of revenue, in terms of a, a lot of challenges, in some cases layoffs. Uh, and so I think it's, it's, it's really going to be a morale boost, even if we're at the 20, 30 percent level to see us moving in the right direction. Oh, absolutely. And, and again, that, there's that sort of whole undercurrent and foundation of joy that, you know, you, you talk to these teams execs and just talk to them about what it's like to be ticketing fans again when they hadn't been doing that for literally a year. Just the, the glee and just, you know, team exec, you know, I, I'm spending all night at the office and just the, the joy that comes out when you hear these stories of the hours that they're putting in again, because they've just been waiting so long to be able to do that. Yeah, I think we're going to have a good spring and, and a good summer. At least I'm, I'm hoping that. And I think there's a lot of optimism in the sports industry, the live events industry in general. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, that's going to wrap up another episode of Sport Business Finance Weekly. We really appreciate you spending this time with us. And as a quick disclaimer, this podcast is provided for informational purposes only. It is not intended to be financial or investment advice. Thanks again. And we'll see you next week. 